Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. We're going in our Bibles. Turn there, if you will, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to read the text. I'm just going to dive right into it, and then we're going to, I'm going to explain why are we here as we look at the main point of Hebrews, the main point of the book of Psalms, the main of point of the entire Bible and all history. It's all about Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews summarizes the first seven chapters, and in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, he says, now the point in what we are saying is this. I'm going to get to the point. We have such a high priest, one who is seated, you might underline that word in your Bible, seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ, okay, Messiah, has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first, that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. This is the word of God. In between our study to Paul's letter to the Galatians, and that series was Stand Firm in Grace. We studied through that letter all about the gospel. It's not about what you can do. It's not about what you have done. It's about what God has done. We went into a series, Live Boldly, and we looked at certain individuals from the gospel of John. And in between those series, we were in Hebrews chapter 1, the first four verses where we looked at Jesus is better. And the, I believe Hebrews is a sermon. If you read it, it takes about 45 minutes. That's about a good time for a sermon. All right. If you read it through, he presents in times past, and he talks about the Old Testament, and then he says in these last days. And if you're watching the uh, news at all, you're probably wondering, like, what is going on in our world? Are we living in the last days? And there can even be a preoccupation with Jesus may return and it may be at any moment. That is what it has been for 2,000 years. And it ought not lead us to panic. It ought not lead us into turmoil. We're to comfort one another with these words, Paul says to the Thessalonians. We're to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We look to the skies, but we have a ministry to fulfill here and now. We're to be busy when he comes. We're to be serving, worshiping. Jesus is better. 
Whenever we finish a series or a book study in the Bible, for 15 years about now, it's been our custom that we'll, we'll take a moment, we'll take a Sunday, and we'll take a look at, at the person of Christ. We'll take a look at the priority of Scripture. and Why is it as a church we gather and you will hear, and I want your ear to be trained to this when you listen to sermons online or you visit churches or you're looking for a church on vacation. I want you to be listening is this a man-centered sermon? Or is this a Christ-centered sermon? It's one of our distinctives here. My prayer is that you don't leave having a bunch of information or even information about a speaker, but what does God say? What does God's word say? Was that sermon about the man or was that sermon about Jesus? Are our lives centered around us or our lives centered around Jesus. Perhaps we even take a focus on the church and the priority of the church. After we finished our study last Sunday in the Psalms of Ascent, it would be very possible that someone might say, you know, that really sounded interesting. I wish I could have been alive then. I wish I could have made those made those trips with my family. I wish I could go worship in a temple. That would be great, and it would be beautiful, and there would be priests and all of these different things. And remember what the disciples said to Jesus, look how beautiful the temple is, reflecting the sunlight off all that gold. And what did Jesus say? It's all coming down. And that happened in AD 70 when the Roman army wiped it out, took every speck of gold off of every stone and threw all the stones over the side of the hill. So when we think about symbols and we think about religion and we think about even sounds, smells, the aroma that the temple would have had, incense, then all of that, we're to be reminded, was a shadow. It was pointing. It was a copy pointing to the real person. Some believers in the first century, 2,000 years ago, they would have been saved out of Judaism. They would have been saved out of that whole system that Jesus preached into, came into, was born into to say the fulfillment of the law is here. And there would have been believers in the first century that would have said, I kind of miss all those things. We used to go here, and I knew what to do then, and we stood up here, and we went over there, and we brought this sacrifice. It all was so calculated, and I knew what was going on. And now, maybe their world was turned upside down. Maybe their family disowned them. Maybe they even lost their job. And they're saying, what do we got here? Are we missing all of those things? They would have endured pressure from their brothers, fellow Israelites, who to this day continue to reject Jesus. Those who were trapped in Judaism, a works-based at that point system that did not save, would have been critical of Christianity. They'd have been skeptical of Christianity. And the questions that they would have asked followers of Jesus would have been a little bit like this. Hey, where's your temple? Where's your beautiful, fancy place to worship? You're meeting in Joseph's house? You're meeting under a tree out there like they do in India? (laughs) Have you seen our temples? 
Where's your sanctuary that contains the presence of the Holy One? Where's your altar at for sacrifices? Where's your water, your holy water and basins for purification? Where are your sacrifices that cover the offenses of sin before God? And where are your priests that minister between you and God? And what about your rituals and your feasts and your dietary restrictions? Don't you have diet? Don't you do certain things at certain times of the year? And you know, it makes you acceptable to God and makes you better than other people around you and gives you some sense of standing and confidence? Where is all of that? Why are you defiling yourself by meeting with Gentiles? What's up with that? And then the real zinger would be, what is this I hear about you eating the body of your Lord and drinking his blood? That doesn't sound right. And that's what was being said in the first century, as they would gather, and in that place of worship, in their house under a tree, they would have wine, and they would have flat bread. And so those first century would have said, this is what you have? You're asking me to leave all my beautiful stuff in worship for this? They would need important answers to these questions. The writer of Hebrews, if you understand this, he's writing to encourage the people who were gathering to hear the word of the Lord, receive the letters from the apostles, remember Jesus, observe communion, see people baptized, and they would have been wondering these very same questions. Have we made the right decision? I mean, this does seem a little simple. And I do miss all of that that I was brought up with. Have I done the right thing? Because I have to know for certain. Now, if you were a Gentile and you heard about the Christian gathering, you'd have been asking questions like this. Where's your images? Where's your idols? Doesn't your place of worship have stuff like animals, people, figures? Don't, you've got to have something that helps you in worship. Where is all that? And in Judaism, in the temple and in the tabernacle, there were no images you shall not make graven images, the Lord said. There were images in the tabernacle and in the tent, but what were those images? People who bear the image of God, the priests and the worshipers. We bear his image, but there was not to be any image made. A Gentile might have said, hey, can we get drunk in worship? Bring on the alcohol. That helps me worship. And where are the temple prostitutes? Because that really helps me worship. And you gather and you read the word and you pray together and you remember and you eat bread and drink a cup together and that just doesn't seem real. I don't really want to do that. Why would I do that? Why would I give up what I have over here and go join you? And why in the world are you gathering with Jewish people? Don't you know they hate us? These are the questions in the first century that would have been going on. That is the context of Hebrews. Have we made the right decision? Have we done the right thing? Because it's been costly. And the writer of Hebrews gets to chapter 8 and says, get the main point. Don't miss the main point. The main point of Hebrews, the main point of the Bible, the main point of every sermon, the main point, beloved, of your life is to be about Jesus. And if it's not, you're missing the only reason you were given life.
me say that again. If you are not living for Jesus as the main point of your life, you are missing right now, doesn't have to stay this way, the only reason you were given the breath of life and made in the image of God. Don't live and die and miss the main point. What has God done for us in the gospel that brings about forgiveness, reconciliation, and the power to live a transformed life? It's very different than me giving you self-help speeches. An encouragement talk to boost you up, to try to get you through another week, to get you back here. It's not, it's not what it is. It's when we hear the word of God and we hear what he has said and it bears fruit in our heart like a seed bears fruit in soil. That's what God does in his word. Matt Smethurst says this. I've used this before. I want to say it again from him. The Bible you possess is evidence that God loves you and wants a relationship with you. You're holding all the evidence you should ever need to say, am I loved? What is the main relationship that if I have that relationship, every other relationship will come and go? That's the course of life. But if I have you, the song says, I have everything. God is enough. What has God done? In the Old Testament, let's look at this. In the Old Testament, Jesus is promised. In the Old Testament, Jesus is promised. Who is this Messiah? Okay, that's the Old Testament focusing on the coming anointed one, on Messiah. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we see who is this Jesus? He is the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15, this is known as the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. And it takes us right after the fall and the curse is given and God is giving to humanity. Here is how redemption is going to unfold and it takes us straight to the cross and to the resurrection. The Lord said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the descendant of the woman, Messiah, shall bruise your head. Now that's a fatal wound. Okay, if you take a head shot, it's a fatal wound. He shall bruise your head, that happened in the cross and in the resurrection, and you shall bruise his heel. That's a formidable wound. And that happened on the cross, where our Lord was slain for sinners. I was reminded this week of the song by David Crowder, My Victory. I just put it on autoplay and just listened to it, just kept it playing, just back and forth, over and over. He says this in the song. He says, you came for criminals and every Pharisee. You came for hypocrites, even one like me. You carried sin and shame, the guilt of every man. The weight of all I've done nailed into your hands. And this is the chorus. Oh, your love bled for me. Oh, your blood in crimson streams. Oh, your death, listen to this, is hell's defeat. A cross meant to kill is my victory. I love that line. A cross meant to kill. The very moment that Satan thought, there's the plan of redemption, 
done. In that cross, we have victory. We have life. The seed of a woman, not only is Jesus promised as the seed of a woman, but also as the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah in Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his children, his 12 sons, before he dies. And on his deathbed, he's pronouncing blessings and judgments over his sons. And we read it in Psalm 110 this morning that Jesus was not a descendant of Levi, the line of the priests. Okay? You couldn't run for office and be a priest. You couldn't buy the office of priest. You had to be born into that family. Well, then how is Jesus qualified to be prophet, priest, and king? Listen to what this blessing is from Jacob to Judah specifically. Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? You going to mess around with a lion? Better not. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the, not just people, not just Israelites, peoples. Now the next two verses are connected to Jesus' triumphal entry. When he was giving specific instructions about go get the colt, you'll find the colt, the foal of a donkey, attached, bound to a vine. They would have understood this. For you and me, we're like, what? what are we talking about a vine and a donkey? Where does this come from? I, without studying our Bibles and understanding, every point, the disciples and the Israelites of Jesus' day had all kinds of signs. Something in here kept them from bowing down before Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 11, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This coming Messiah was the seed of a woman and the lion of Judah and the son of David. We have spent a lot of time in the Psalms focusing on how David's son would also be David's Lord. How does that happen? What king bows down to their son. No king in his right mind unless your son is greater than you. And in Jesus, that is the case. Psalm 110, Psalm 132, David's son is also David's Lord. And then the blind guys, they were the ones you saw. Everybody else around Jesus. So many people missed it. But then you had the blind guys on two different occasions. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Hey, hey, quiet down. We're having big church over here. He's talking. Leave him alone. Yeah, thanks. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. The blind guys saw that this is the one we've been waiting for. Come help us. And in Isaiah 53, we see the suffering servant. This is who Messiah is. And I believe it was on Easter Sunday when our kids, we had them all send in their videos when we were still not able to worship together. So it was all online and our kids read Isaiah 53. 
And one of the verses that was read, I have it saved on my computer. One of our children was reading Isaiah 53, and they got to the portion where it talks about that he was bruised for our iniquity, that stripes were laid upon him. And the the child stopped. They got choked up. They couldn't keep reading because the reality of the message of Isaiah 53, it punched them in the soul. And they realized, having come to faith in Christ and followed in baptism, and they're reading, and it just washed over them. And I could tell by watching this young person reading that the full weight of the gospel was hitting them again. And he looks at his mom and says, "I, I I can't read on. And I was just reminded in the simplest way, it's the word with power. And that little child reading the word has more power than any president, any emperor, any king, because it's the word of God. And it's true. This is an unmistakable prophecy of Jesus that John the Baptist would say, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God. Well, that's the Old Testament. We see what God has done for us in the gospel. Old Testament brings forgiveness, reconciliation, and the power to live a transformed life. Well, what about in the New Testament then? Let's look at this. In the New Testament, Jesus is presented. Old Testament, Jesus is promised. New Testament, Jesus is here. He comes. He's presented Where do we see this Messiah? This Messiah. Now, if you, some people will say, you know, I I just kind of focus on the New Testament. I don't really understand the Old Testament. Maybe you kind of identify with this. I I mean, there's a lot of begots in there, and there's a lot of, you know, death penalties in there. So I just kind of say in the New Testament, seems a little more comfortable. Are you you understanding what I'm saying? Here's the problem with that. If you ever go to a play or you are part of a movie or you watch something on TV and then somebody comes home and they sit down next to you and the movie is three quarters of the way over and they start asking you questions, you know what I'm saying? Like, um, well, who's that? Oh, what'd they do? What's going on there? What's, and, and what do you want to say to them? You should have been here at the beginning. You missed the first half. Set your alarm better, whatever. Get there. You missed part one and now you're trying to understand part two. You can't. You have to have part one to understand part two. They go together. One he's promised. The other one he's presented. You need both. Or other, you're like, who's this? He's walking out of the, the desert and John the Baptist and baptism and what's all that about? You need part one to set you up to understand what is God doing in redemption? That's how it makes sense. When John the Baptist comes, part one, the old covenant is fading out, and part two, the new covenant is coming on the scene. It's overtaking. It's not that part one was bad. It was incomplete. And part two, Jesus coming on the new covenant supersedes. It's better than, and let me ask you the question, would you rather have a picture? I mean, I could ask you that. Do you want to have a picture of your loved one? How many of you have a picture of a loved one somewhere? Raise your hand, all right? Pretty much everybody on your phone, but would you rather hug the picture or your loved one? Okay? I said in the first service, I have a list of all the church members. It's printed. Some of the pictures are by them. But I'm much more in favor of seeing you, being with you, and hugging and shaking your hand, being with you, embracing you. It's much better than embracing the paper that has your name on it. Like, oh, you know, that'd be weird. It is weird. I don't do that. Just in case you're wondering. 
would you rather have the symbols that point to Jesus or Jesus? And this is what people were missing when they would come into the context of the church gathering in the first century and they don't have the temple and they don't have all those things and all the bells and whistles and all that they grew up with. What are you doing? We're doing what he said to do because we have him. And once you have him, you're just obedient and the symbols point to him, but you have him. They find their place. It's not that they're not important. Baptism is not important. Is that what you're saying? I'm not saying that. There's no salvation in baptism. Are you saying communion is not important? I didn't say that. Communion is important. But would you rather have the picture of communion or the picture of Christ or Christ? We have, as believers who have turned from their sin and received the gospel and trusted in Lord Jesus, we have Christ. And these symbols preach the gospel And they point, they're symbols that point to the Savior. So every week, every sermon, by God's grace, we're going to get to the gospel. G-O-S-P-E-L. God created us to worship him, to know him, to love him, to enjoy him. Oh, our sin separated us from this holy God. S, sins cannot be removed by doing good deeds. P, paying the price for my sin, for your sin. Jesus came. He lived the life that you and I could never live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die. He was buried. He rose again to give everyone who turns from their sin life that never ends. That's the gospel. Every message. I'm not going to take for granted that I'll be, I'll see you next Sunday. I may not see you next Sunday. I, you may not be here next Sunday. If you have never believed the gospel, do not procrastinate. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. You don't need the elements. You need the one the elements point you to. You need Jesus. So pass on the cup and the bread and receive Jesus. But in the same way, his love is demonstrated that he loves us and we hold those elements in our hand. They're received down into us. It's picturing what you have to do with the gospel, not just hear it, not just acknowledge it, check the box. You have to receive it. It becomes the center of your being, the center of your life. Jesus, the main point. That's what the writer's saying. Leonard uh, Ravenhill, he said this. He said, Jesus did not come to make bad men good. Okay, that'd be reformation. Jesus came into the world to make dead men live. That's why he came. See, religion tries to take bad people and clean them up a little bit. I'm not as bad as I used to be. Going to church how many ever times a week? That's not what Christianity is. Not trying to take bad men and make them good. Jesus came to take dead men and make them live. When Jesus came, in Mark chapter 1 and verse uh, 14, in the Gospels, Jesus is revealed, okay? That's where he's revealed in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Mark chapter 1, it says this, now after John was arrested, and that's John the Baptist, and Jesus came into Galilee, what was he doing? Right out of the gate, proclaiming the gospel of God. Verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. What's Jesus' message? Repent and believe the gospel. What do you think every preacher and every Christian's message should be that we get to with the people that we interact with, know, and love? Have you repented? 
Have you believed in the gospel? If not, do so today. The gospel has nothing to do with making us nice. It has everything to do with making us new. That's what we need, and that's what Jesus presented in the gospels, revealed in the gospels. That's what he told Nicodemus in John chapter three. Then you get to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, Jesus is preached. The disciples received their mission. The Holy Spirit came. The church was born. The gospel was preached everywhere that believers went. Persecution came, and it pressed them down like smashing a flower, and the room is filled with fragrance. Everywhere believers went, the more they were persecuted, the more they were pushed, the more they preached the gospel. And Jews and Gentiles were united into local assemblies and city by city and nation by nation. Nearly all of the apostles, as they preached, nearly all of them died a martyr's death. It cost them their life to tell people the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts, Jesus is preached. In the epistles, Jesus is explained. These are the letters written to the churches, church leaders, pastors, elders of the church. As the churches were planted, they would be explaining Jesus as they would worship together, as they would make disciples who made disciples. Beloved, Jesus is so concerned about his church. He loves his church. Believers coming together to worship, to work, and to walk together. And beloved, the head of the body will see to it. He will see to it that his body is pure, that his body is holy and walking together in unity and love and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul would write to Timothy that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth in 1 Timothy 3.15. And in Revelation, Jesus is expected. Jesus is expected in Revelation. Jesus, beloved, will come again. The first coming was not to mark iniquities. Remember we studied in Psalm 130 verse 3? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Not me. Not you. Couldn't stand. We wouldn't make it. If he came the first time just to find all the sinners and destroy them, wouldn't be alive. Why did Jesus come? In his first coming, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, all right, to mark out iniquities. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness, sin. Self, selfishness, evil, rather than the light, because their works were evil. Whenever we sin, beloved, it's a problem, it's a love problem, it's a worship problem. That we love sin, that's why we sin. The old, the devil made me do it. No, we love sin. And so how are we going to stop sinning? Our love has, there has to be a greater love. It's a love for God, it's a love for Christ. What has God done for us in the gospel that brings forgiveness, reconciliation, and the power to live a transformed life? In the Old Testament, Jesus is promised. He's coming. In the New Testament, Jesus is presented. Here he is, and he will come again. Expect him. He will return. And now to our point in Hebrews, in everything, in all things, Jesus is preeminent. If you're a kid taking notes, write down Jesus is the point. He's the main point. 
He's preeminent, the preeminent one. What is this high priestly ministry of this Messiah? That's what we want to look at. That's what Hebrews is saying. Here's the point. It's Jesus. This ministry, this high priestly ministry of Jesus, Messiah, is described here, and it's really the first two verses of this text. It's personal. It's a personal ministry. We have such a high priest. It's not you are spectators and I can tell, I'm a pastor, I have a high priest. Sorry about you. No, no, we. We have a high priest. We have such a high priest representing man to God and God to man. Human high priests, they could identify well with sinful man. As a pastor, I can identify really well with sinful people, but I'm not God. So I can't relate to people from God's perspective, from God's point of view in and of myself. This is personal, but Jesus can. Jesus is God. So he relates in his humanity to the Father And he relates in his deity to humanity. He is the God-man. He still bears the marks in his body of being crucified. He has both perspectives. This is the personal relationship that we have with Jesus, our high priest, our great high priest. Now, I have two illustrations. Imagine you're a little league coach or a major league coach. It doesn't even matter. And on your team, you have a pitcher who's never been hit. No one has ever hit one pitch they have thrown. And you're the coach. He's sitting on the bench. You can put him in, and you are guaranteed we're going to win this game. But then you're thinking, but then people will really wonder if I'm that good of a coach. Because if I just put that player in, then we're going to win. And they'll think he is the one, he's the reason why we win. And they won't understand how good of a coach I am. Wouldn't that be foolish? Wouldn't that be stupid? Like you have a pitcher on your bench. All they throw is fastballs and no one's ever hit one pitch. Coach, put them in the game. Another illustration. You're in trouble with the law. You broke the law. And you have an attorney available to you and the attorney has never lost a case, ever. But you say in your pride and arrogance, you know, thank you, but no thanks. I've watched some Law and Order in my days. I've watched some Perry Mason to go back a little further. I think I'll be all right. I'll handle this on my own. Wouldn't that be foolish? Like, what? You have someone available to you, and you're not going to bow down and use them? Why? Because of your own pride. Jesus our great high priest is available to every sinner. Doesn't matter what you're worth. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter Jew, Gentile. It, none of that matters. You're made in the image of God and Jesus, God in flesh, is available to you as a high priest. That's what we sang this morning, great defender. My defender. No average defender. It's Jesus who paid the penalty of my sin. He's the descendant of Judah. 
He's the great high priest. That's why we keep coming back to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Make these familiar verses. Like, read these often. Remind yourself of what God says if you're in Christ, of who you have in your defense as your high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Who are we talking about? Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. You hear what he's saying? Hang in there. Yeah, but we don't have the temple anymore, and we don't have all the sacrifice. And all. Hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Now here's what separates Jesus from every other priest. Yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's Jesus. His ministry is personal. His ministry is supernatural. Verse one says, yes, we have such a high priest, one who is seated. One who's seated. Now, this would have been shocking to an Israelite who understood the tabernacle, who understood the temple, and they would have said, no, 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 hang on a second. Nobody sits down. There are no chairs in the temple. There are no chairs in the tabernacle. And this one is seated. There was only one seat in the sanctuary. In the most holy place, there was the mercy seat. This was God's domain. This was his manifestation of his footstool on earth. No high priest ever went in and sat in that seat. They would have died. They would have had to pull them out by the rope that was tied around their ankle for being presumptuous. Like, you're not not God. You can't sit there. You do what God said, and you sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. We need your covering, Lord. We need your bloodshed. We need you to save us. No high priest could say, I got it. I'll take this on. And here he's saying that Jesus is seated. The words seated means that the work is finished. He has done it, which is exactly what Jesus said on the cross. Beloved, he said it is finished. The veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom, from God to man, and the most holy place was wide open and people didn't die that day. Why? Because Jesus died. And he opened the way for sinners. And Judaism, that religious system, they sewed the veil back up. They put the separation back up. They ignored and denied and rejected Jesus' Messiah. Jesus' work of atonement was finished. Psalm 22, 31, God has done this. John 19, verse 30, on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. His work of atonement is done. That's why we don't have mass, a re-sacrificing, a re-sacrificing of Jesus. Sacrifice Jesus again. And again, it is finished once for all, done. We don't keep re-sacrificing Jesus. His advocacy work, though, is ongoing. 1 John 2 and verse 1, John the apostle says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, anyone still sin? Yeah, me, both hands. 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Just think about what God is saying on our behalf to the Father. Father, it's hard being human. Yes, yes, Brian's guilty. Yes, he shouldn't have done that, but I died. That sin is covered. That sin is paid for. And somebody who belongs, as I belong to Christ, then shall I go on sinning that grace may abound? Romans 6 says, no, God forbid, no. If I love Jesus, how will I go on committing and doing what he died for? It's, it's incongruent. It doesn't make sense. It says he's the main point, but my life is saying I'm the main point. It doesn't add up. This is a supernatural ministry. It's also a powerful ministry. He's seated Where? Not on the corner of Forest and Friday. He's seated in heaven at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. That's like saying he's seating, he is seated beside God. The right hand. This position of authority beside the Father. The New City Catechism says the same in substance and equal in power and glory. And Jesus said it in John 10 verse 30. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. They didn't like that, but it was true, and Jesus couldn't lie. Access to the Father is only through the Son. It's not through a servant. It's not through a slave. It's through the Son. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through who opens the access to the Father. Jesus, the Son of God. It's a personal ministry. It's a supernatural ministry. It's a powerful ministry. And it's a celestial ministry. Celestial. In heaven. His high priestly ministry has gone where no human priest, a human descendant of Levi, could ever go on their own. Only the high priest could go in behind the veil one time a year, day of atonement. But to step into heaven? Who does that? Jesus did. He's the Lord. As we saw in the Psalms, he is the maker of heaven and earth. He doesn't serve in the realm of the copy or the shadow, but in the reality of heaven. So believers are taken from the classification of criminal to child. How does this happen? Grace. And mercy. Therefore, Jesus is our advocate. He stands in heaven in our defense. Paul writes in Romans 8 34, who is to condemn? You know who the person is who condemn? Jesus. That's the only one that could condemn us. Now, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, he accuses us. This is a truthful statement that Satan can say against me to the Father. You have that guy? You have wise down there speaking to those people? Those people are sitting and listening to him. Do you know what kind of guy he is? Do you know he's just all over the map and he's up and down? You see the faith that he has? He doesn't have enough faith. And he doesn't even have to lie about me. He's no success of a husband. He's no success of a father. Look here, this way, this way. All these different ways. He's a failure. He's a failure. He's a failure. And Jesus is the one, the only one that can say that and it be all true and he can condemn me. Satan can't condemn me. He can accuse me. But in all of it, being truthful, Jesus says, but I died and he belongs to me and I'm not going to condemn a child. I'll discipline a child, but I'll not condemn a child. He's mine, Father. My blood shed for him, declared righteous. 
the charge does not stand because it was laid on me and I paid it. And you can't take a double payment for a fine, for a penalty, and be just. I paid it, paid in full. It is finished. It is finished. And every charge that comes up against me, man, he's just not that great of a pastor. Well, he just does, he does that, he does that. All this going up, going up, going up, going up. And every one of them fall. And Jesus says, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. And if you belong to Christ, his blood was shed, and you have an advocate in heaven, celestial, not just on earth, in heaven, advocating your defender. How many cases has he lost? None. None. If this doesn't lead you and me to worship, nothing will. Your focus is focusing on the wrong thing, and this message is designed, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, get your focus on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You're looking at everything else. Look to Jesus. That Jesus Christ Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand, here he is, of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Do you know what he's doing for me right now? He can't preach a great message. He's he's a mess of it. He's interceding for me by his spirit taking his word and taking it out to hearers, to your heart. He's the one who brings fruit how did all, how was all this made possible? A minister in the holy places, verse says, it's because his ministry is lastly sacrificial. He has boldly go, gone where no man was allowed to go because he is God who became a man. Why? Why would God who created everything Come and be born of a virgin and live a life as a nobody. Is that what you would do if you were God? Outcast of society. Be rejected by your own family, your own brothers. Is that the plan that you would choose? I don't think I would. But I'm not God. This was God's plan. And what Christ has done required a sacrifice. Where's your sacrifice, Jesus? Where's your birds? Where's your animals? Where's your sacrifice? He didn't bring anything in his hand. But out to the outside the city, the hill of Golgotha, he brought himself. And he laid down his life. The sacrifice that Jesus gave wasn't somebody else's gift. It was himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, Paul writes, he made him to be, no, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is love. When this reality takes a hold of you, beloved, you will admit you're not worthy of God's love and at the same time you'll realize God's love is for you. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. Those are the, there's three different kinds of people. One who says, no, I'm too far gone. I'm too bad. I'm too awful. I'm in the gutter. He would never save me. Then there's the person on the other side like, you know who I am? You know what I've done? You know how religious I am? I observe all the feasts. I do all these things. This is me. I do all these things. And I'm just going to talk about all the other things I don't do. I, I don't need God's grace. And then there's the person who 
is a Christian or becomes a Christian, they say, I'm not worthy and his grace is sufficient. I need him. Have mercy on me. And the Lord says, I I save that person. And our boasting then is in the cross, not in our own accomplishments. We can say with Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. Sacrificial. What Christ has accomplished in the gospel resulted in his exaltation. And I just want to close by reading Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. When we gather and we observe the Lord's table, we look back and we remember, yes, he was crucified. His blood was shed. His body was shredded for our sin. But it doesn't end there. His death, burial, and resurrection, it produces something. His exaltation and something happens in the church. It's a so what. It's a therefore. It changes us. It brings us together. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, he says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So when we come to the Lord's table, that's the aim. We're coming together. We're coming in agreement. We're saying the same thing. And our love for one another is to be conformed to Christ's love for his church. Verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, on Jesus, the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, who is he? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And we exalt him. So let me ask you the question again. Would you rather have symbols or would you rather have a savior? The symbols in the Old Testament pointed to the coming savior. We're here having the Bible in our possession, looking back to the cross and we look back and these symbols look back, but we have a savior and we know his name and we know who his mom was, and we know what town he was born in, and we know where his ministry happened, and we know where he laid down his life, and we know approximately where an empty tomb is, and we worship. So in defense, the first century Christians could say to pagans, and they could also say to Jewish people who rejected Jesus, come with me. These symbols point to, and they could walk into an empty tomb. Here's what separates Christianity from every other religion. You know what we don't have? A dead leader. 
His tomb is empty. And we serve a living Savior who was promised he came, he ascended, and he's coming back. Are you ready? And do you know him? Because he died and rose again so that you could have life in him. Do you know him today? He is preeminent. Do you regard him as that way? Personally, is he the main point of your life? I've been asking questions at the end of sermons through our studies. Today, I have one question, and it's this. What's your next step? In response to this message, in response to this gospel, in response to this high priest, what's your next step? And can we help you take that step? Take that step today. Respond in obedience today. Will you stand We're going to pray and we're going to sing. Our attention, our focus is going to be on the cross and we're going to observe communion together for those who have been saved, for those who have followed Christ in baptism. You've made your profession public and for the confessing ones that there's not sin in our lives that we refuse to deal with. If there's sin that you have not repented of and changed your ways, pass on the cup and bread and deal and let the Lord deal with that sin. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for salvation that is offered. Grace is freely given because you paid our penalty with your life. Thank you for your blood that was shed and your body that was broken. Jesus, you are the preeminent one. And as your church, forgive us, cleanse us. May we regard you as holy as master, as Lord, and serve you and worship you and serve one another in a way that honors you. Will you take this word by your spirit, apply it to every heart, and may we know what is that next step? What do I need to do in response? For the person who's never trusted you, may today be their day of salvation, where they simply admit to you, to you, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need a savior, and I trust in Jesus Christ. whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.